Some people say that you shouldn't sell the problem. I say you should always sell the problem. You need to make sure that the other side feels the pain. Welcome to Product Income Maker. Product businesses promise the biggest upside to break free from the time for money trap and enjoy the product selling itself and scale effortlessly. Yet on the path to success, entrepreneurs run into product market misfit, financial pressures, team dynamics, and self-doubt. This podcast is about how entrepreneurs overcome these challenges and grow profitable product businesses, how they become product income makers. Our guest today is Daniel Milkerson, founder and CEO of FinMe2, helping multi-store locations brand from retail and car dealerships to expand their SEO footprint across physical store locations to increase brand awareness, food traffic, and sales. Using only 3 million euro in funding, they have been able to reach 3 million euro ARR in sales, a great capital efficiency sales growth by unlocking the biggest chain logos and overcoming investors' adversity. Daniel, you're an inspiring product income maker. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Daniel, share with us, how did you discover the pain of big logos around the problem that you have been trying to solve? So we started this company a few years ago and we actually did something completely different. Well, what we did was actually we're trying to aim the tourism industry and we build a little widget for any company within tourism so they can put a little widget on their webpage where someone that visiting the webpage could actually log into the widget and see where their friends has been. If they log checked in somewhere in Facebook or Instagram, uh, could see reviews from Google and so on. We were looking for information about locations on different social media and search and maps networks. And what we found was that, that the information from the locations were so poor. So we said someone needs to build some kind of a sheet sheet for this. Just like, you know, when you, at least what I did in mathematics in school, like you can look in the back of the book if you didn't know the answer. So that's where it started. The tourism industry was quite slow to sell to. So we wanted to go into another industry. We want to have an industry that were more industries in it. And that, let's see if we can build the sheet and if someone is willing to pay for it. Our whole idea was that we're going to build a B2B SaaS business. We're going to approach companies or organization, could be a city as well, or hospitals that the information they have about their locations is really important to have them updated on maps and search and social media networks. So that was the whole idea. We started out of a pivot from the first idea. So how did you realize, did you ask them questions? Did you run polls? Did you pick up the phone? Were there any customers to pull from? Was there an advisor to ask about this question? How did you discover that this was a worthwhile pursuing pain to go after? I'm a sales guy and I started two companies, but I've always been the sales guy. So I started talking to presumptive future customers early on. So we talked to customers, no other advisors whatsoever. I think a marketing director at this chain should have the problem. And then as a salesperson, you make sure you get in contact with that person. And in a startup, it's actually quite easy because you can say, we're starting off a company that we have nothing to sell to you. We just want to see if there's something that you feel as a pain and people are willing to help. It's much easier to have that approach than it is for us today to go and say, hey, we have this product. We want you to buy it to fix your pain. It's much easier as a startup where you don't have something to sell to for feedback. And then, of course, after that, 
a few of those people actually got really involved with, okay, please come back. I'm happy to help. So we got a few ambassadors very early on at different chain businesses. And we started out of Sweden. I always aimed to go very local in the beginning. Uh, so I went out to Swedish companies, of course. It's easy. And from that, on, the road wasn't straight, but in some way, found our way into a first product that we actually could sell. It took us about, I would say, six to eight months. What's about the first success? Was there a multi-chain, the first multi-chain customer or prospect that found or that was bought into the idea? How did that dynamic happen? Depends on how you see success. I always try to go as big as possible. And out of Sweden, the biggest chain businesses are Volvo, H&M, and Ikea. We talked to all of them and actually we got quite fast. We got in contact with a good person at Ikea. So we had the Swedish Ikea stores as the first kind of, when we built the product there, we actually used their stores, which helps a lot to get a big brand early on. Of course, I'm not, now I don't care really anymore, but in the beginning, we're not allowed to say that we worked with Ikea, but it doesn't really matter because you can use it in a room where you talk to when you're raising money or whatever you can say it. You're not allowed to go out and say it in the newspaper, which helps a lot. Love piggybacking. When you're a startup, you're nothing. No one cares about your brand because they don't know about your brand. And then you can always piggyback on other big, bigger brands. So that's what we've been through, trying to do the whole way. So we can say, okay, but we work with this brand. Oh shit, you do. Yeah. And that builds trust because they don't trust Pinmit. People couldn't even pronounce Pinmit when we started. I always tried to piggyback. I don't know if that was the answer to your question, but it was a little story. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious if you can share about what was that first customer, maybe Ikea, what did they buy into? Was there like a vision? Was there like an initial proof or was there only a problem statement that was strong enough for them to say, yeah, I believe in you and I believe in the problem statement for them to go with you? So Ikea wasn't our first paying customer. It was actually a, a fitness chain and then a gas station chain because that's Ikea. They don't want to pay until they, that's how Ikea, they're cheap. Some people say that you shouldn't sell the problem. I say you should always sell the problem. You need to make sure that the other side feels the pain. And it's quite easy for us. If we can go out, especially in the beginning, we're like, okay, we can find three Ikea stores on Google Maps. The rest are not there or it's completely wrong opening hours, it's the wrong address or whatever information we can find wrong. So it's very easy for us to visually, we could just do screenshots or sit together with them and actually go to map services and search directories and say, hey, you're not there. You should. Of course we should. They don't know to that when we say that. So I think that was quite easy for us to do. And we sell the same way now pretty much. So you have demonstrated amazing sales efficiency, being able to raise and use only 3 million and get to 6 million ARR. So show with us what has worked well and maybe what has not worked well as you discovered what's working well in terms of sales efficiency. What didn't work really well was that we a little bit too early on had a little bit too high hopes and we actually made an effort to go into India because it's a very fast growing market for chain businesses. And then we had a few great, very happy Indian customers that never, ever paid. So there was a learning from that. <laughs> then we went back and we said, okay, let's do it in a way that we know the market. So we're from the Nordics. We're out of Sweden. But then we moved. Of course, in Sweden, we tried to get as much industries as possible and build cases around that in Sweden. And then we moved into our closest markets that we knew, Norway, Finland, Denmark, and so on, and moved out of that. And now we're in 10, 12 markets. But... I think it's keep it closed. It's a good advice in the beginning when it comes to sales efficiency.
and try to do as much as possible to similar companies in the beginning. If you're moving to one industry, make sure that you figure out the problem with that industry and make sure that you really only sell in that industry until this industry knows about us. We're actually a name in this industry now. After that, you can move into other industries. That's my suggestion. We did it wrong. We tried too many industries too early on. So if you had to decide on that again, would you only do car dealerships all the way to 6 million ARR, for instance? Yes, I probably would. I would do one industry. I will do it at my home market first, the closest markets, and then I will do a global approach. on. If you can hit your home market and a few maybe markets that you know really well around you. And in this industry, we, we are number one now in these markets. We, you can be quite fast in assess if doing only one thing. Then you have all the reason in the world to go globally after that. Because you can probably be better than your competitors in that industry. For most of your competitors, try to reach many industries. So please share the uh, number of customers and so how does that 6 million ARR breaks down? Is it about a few hundred of big customers and a few hundred of small customers? And do I understand correctly from my notes that the average paying customer, they're paying $1,500 per month, $18,000 per year? Yeah, on average, a little bit below that. Our main target is SMEs, I would say, small, medium enterprises to enterprises. Of course, we're not saying no to the blue ships, really big companies, but we also know that it's two to three, even up to five year sales process from time to time with these really big companies because they're all over the world and you need to sell into different markets and so on. So if you want to grow fast, I would suggest SMEs or SMEs and SMBs, but then you're targeting two completely different kind of companies. We try to stay away from SMBs. And for us, that we count locations. We say we don't work with one place businesses. And we try to stay away from that because they usually don't have enough knowledge. They don't have enough pain. They don't feel the pain enough of what we do. And they also take up a lot of our time in the CS because once they're on board, they need a lot of educational help because they don't have people hired that knows digital marketing or this space at all. We pick a little bit, not the super big, they're fine. We're not super focused on enterprise enough, but SMEs that we can close a business within a few weeks up to a few months. That's our target. And that's also what you see in our uh, average MRR numbers as well. How many customers are you losing on average? We are under 3%, I would say, on gross churn per year. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah, it is. Our product is it's quite sticky because once you have it, okay, what well, we need to have this is security that people, this is security for local SEO. If we don't, we're going to lose customers. So it's quite sticky. Usually we tend to churn customers is either because they actually weren't a good fit from the beginning, often a little bit too small, or they change management in marketing in some way. So new marketing, head of marketing comes in and says, oh, I'm going to redo everything. But then we tend to get them back after a few months again, so on. So it's a quite sticky business. So with a ballpark of a yearly average pay of around $20,000 per year, with such a nice retention, I don't know, let's call it 10 years, according to a 3% annual or so. So you can easily, hey, even with a lifetime value to CAC ratio of three or four or five, however you want to put a target for it, you can easily pay 30, 40, 50 grand for acquiring such a customer across all your sales and marketing spending. Is that how you see it? Would that be fair? Yes, that's how we see it as well. We're not a product-led company. We're a sales-led company, but we put the product first. Of course, we tell about the product, but first, if we do with normal sales, we talk about the pain points. 
So our sales is, I would say 90% is outbound and 10% is inbound. And that's how we picked to chose to build this company with the numbers you just said works. But what we also started last year that we didn't do, we just did it opportunity wise, not processed at all was the up sales and cross sale. So we started that team last year. Today we have three different products on our platform, which one product is the one that we always need to sell in the beginning to get the platform and for have our customers to work in the product. And then we have two upsell products that we are doing a lot of more upsells now. So our most important KPI right now is the net retention. So we actually do a lot of upsells. What is that retention right that now? That will help us. Oh, it's, I think we're going from, I think we're going from like 103 and now we're moving into 110 and our target is 115%. And that helps us, of course, to be profitable. For Maybe last thing about sales efficiency. So. If I recall correctly, you mentioned you give a sales individual a $1 million quota on a yearly basis. Is that correct? It depends on what, that is a really senior salesperson, but of course everyone has a quota. Our focus is more on letting have smaller teams have their quota and then they share it in the teams and the teams are anything between two people to eight people and every team handles either their industry or their region. Being a sales-focused company like yourself that is demonstrating such a great sales efficiency, what is, in your opinion, the keys to growing and training and hiring great sales individuals that meet their quotas? It's something we struggle with all the time and want to be better all the time. But I would say very early on, you need some A players that, you know, have done the job before. Give them the ball. They can run with it because they have the experience. Now, not so much, or <laughs> need not so many of those because they tend to be not super efficient when it comes to handling teams because they are self-driven. They work for themselves. They will work from their own bonuses and so on. So you always need a few of those. What we've done now is that we have a very structured sales development department and we have a very structured sales management department, and then they leave it to CS as soon as the deal is closed so they can go back and focus on sales. Every team has SDRs and sales managers. And then we have another part of, of sales organizations that we call sales enablement, where we have people working only, okay, do we actually use our sales tool the best possible way one person handles and another person handles, are we educating, onboarding and handling our SDRs and sales managers the best possible way. So we have managers for that. And we can afford that now because we have 40 people in the sales organization. 40, um, right? Or zero. In the beginning, okay. for zero, yes. So that's how we structure it. And then finding best practices and make sure everyone is not doing things exactly the same, not trying too many weird things. Talk about challenges. Can you tell me how you almost got bankrupt and what did you do? Yeah, I can try to do it short. When we started it, this company, my whole idea was I'm going to build this kind of company. I want to learn how, how raising money and how VC funding works. So the whole idea from the beginning was to have raised capital because I built companies before on my own. And so we raised money very early on. We were at this incubator and one day they had this for Dragon's Den. You can walk in and put, pitch an idea and I did. It was the idea we had before we pivoted in the idea we have today. So I ended up in Dragon's Den and they actually invested 200,000 euros. Uh, so we had an investor very early on. And uh, after that, we pivoted. We used the money to build the proof of concept of the product we have today. And after that, I, I did my, what I've said earlier, piggybacking. So I looked for 
the company in Sweden that owns most retail store chains. And they just started a VC company inside that organization that was supposed to invest in fast growing SaaS tech companies or tech companies in general. Very early phase to invest, which they've now never done before. They hired a few people to run that. They invested in us, uh, more money than the annual investments from Dragon's Den. And they were lead investors. And they told us to, okay, go ahead, build out the product, hire developers, just scale. We got your back. Sure. And that we did. And then they decided in this company, no, we're not going to keep investing in early startup companies. We're going to do something different. So they just took it away. And the people that were hired to handle us, they were fired. And there we were. And we had hired, we went from four founders to 20 people, hefty burn <laughs> per month, and an investor that kind of left. And we had a new round already fixed where I talked to another big chain business in Sweden, and they were supposed to co-invest in the next round. And then they went away. So of course, everything kind of fell down. So it was, I think, seven months without salary. How many without salary? for? Oh, no, we gave salary to everyone employed. This was me and the other founders. We managed to have the employees handled. I think last month was a bit hard, but then we actually got a, another annual investor together with, the, I'm not allowed to say, but the biggest brand in Sweden to actually do an investment. But the last month with the money, we were out of money. So the angel investor actually has borrowed the money without any security. So he borrowed us 200,000 euros, which I'm very thankful today. Because without him, we weren't here anymore. And then we, we kind of saved the company, but we lost at least a year, one and a half, two years in, in traction because of this. Because we just had to focus on save the company instead of building the company. That was so, so what are you saying to yourself? What mindset are you practicing during this month to uh, keep you alive, to make it work, to even believe that it's worth it and you'd make it out of this panel? Yeah. First of all, I don't lose. If I can make sure I don't lose, I don't lose. So I think that kind of stamina or grit or what you used to call it helps a lot. But also when these kind of things happen that are out of your control in this way, you also feel a bit like the whole. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm not letting you win this one. And we can have done this very differently. I'm also one of the things I like to be is always walk out of a situation like this as the good guy. We could have done this way differently. We can have put the company in bankruptcy, said fuck off to all the investors and start a new company because they couldn't do it without. But we choose not to. Because I think in the end, it's much better to be the good guy than the bad guy in situations like this. So we asked. Forced it through and luckily we made it. I wouldn't say it was luck, it was hard work because it was hard for someone to invest in a company where the lead investor walked away, even if we had good explanations on why. Can you identify the one thing that made them do it? Was it like believing in you? Was it in the product and vision? Was it customers' testimonials? Like, I, I think it had a lot to, to do with actually our perseverance, more about us as persons and then and the product itself. Of course, we could back it up. We had paying customers and so on back then as well. But in the end, I think they asked, okay, if they made it so far, they will make it real far. Someone actually said something like that when they invested in that round. And then I also know the angel investor that borrows money. He was like, no way this company, because he hated that company, <laughs> will pressure a good company like this. So it was very personal in the end. And emotional. Right. Yes, for sure. And it was really hard for the company. One of my co-founders went away for eight months because he couldn't sleep after this. It's not a good thing. <laughs>
not something I recommend, but I think this is a part of it when you build a company. It's tough. And it's amazing the gap between, from what you're saying, how rock bottom it fell during those months and mm. how today you're able to exemplify such an amazingly good traction, revenue, sales efficiency, $3 million funding with $6 million ARR for a company that is doing that and is growing, I believe you mentioned, thousands of percentage year over year. Every investor pay a lot of money to be part of your story. So it's an amazing story. Yeah. Well, now we're very afraid of investors. No, we're not afraid. We have a lot of investors approaching us today for different reasons and different kind of investments they want to do. But okay, yep. stick with the ones we have right now and see where we go from here. No stress whatsoever. We have money in the bank. And where is situation, if we want more money, we can actually work with that, which we can't in the beginning in the same way. Before we move to the next topic, share with us, what are the challenges today? A lot of challenges today, especially for me, now we're in a company, we're moving into hundred employees. It is the organization wise, how to organize our way ourselves in a good way. How do we keep the culture? I'm not a big fan of the word culture because it's something you earn, not something you build. So how can we keep earning that culture we already have, which I think we help each other a lot here. We will learn from each other and we grow together. How do we keep that moving forward? And another more, which I think is a problem or will be a problem very soon is the effects of COVID. When a lot of companies like us didn't start as distributed company, we started as an office company. I think companies that are not fully distributed from the beginning will have problems when we say, okay. We're at the office when we want to, or we're at home when we want to, or we're at the office two days and so on. Because there will be an office elite and then there will be the others at home and it will be really hard to keep the culture. So that is something we're struggling with now, actually. Let's talk about your recommendations. What are some tools, books, logs, podcasts that you appreciate and you recommend others to check out in order to succeed in building a business? I talk a lot to and listen to Nathan Lepkin because he's got so much numbers. Also, you can actually make really good decisions out of it. And then when it comes to books, tools. Yeah, books. I'm reading an old book, actually, at the moment, American. I don't remember who wrote it. It's called Synchronicity, I think, which is about how leadership changed in the 80s. <laughs> But it never actually changed in the 80s. But it's very, very interesting right now how leadership should work. Because now I'm in a situation now with a lot of employees. So that's why it's important for me. Think about teams differently. Not out of a leadership perspective in the normal sense, but more out of a leadership that you're not leading. You're just helping people to lead themselves, which I think is really interesting. And everyone in a scale-up phase in a company should think about at least. And then very early on, I think there's a lot of different startup books that are good. But I'm not a big fan of getting stuck in books. It's better to go out and talk to customers. I would say, read the customers if you want to read something. Listen to the customers if you want to listen to something. Be in those conversations. Instead. What about tools? Uh, which uh, online tools are you using? Like other SaaS tools? We use a lot of different SaaS tools. So in sales, we use Pipedrive for the sales managers. We use GetAccept, also Malmö-based Sweden friends of ours company for signing, but they also build what they call a sales room now. So we also do sales managers pretty much work all the way in that tool. Now they do the sales presentations, they do the signing in the same tool. So I recommend those two tools. Then we use rocket reach for the SDRs to find the information about companies. And of course, LinkedIn sales navigator is the number one, I would say that we use all the time in sales. 
Then in CS, we use Planet, a Swedish company, for the whole customer journey in there. And then Vidyard for videos. I would also recommend that. Those are the products. Then in our product team, they use a lot of different kind of things for different things, but they are smaller. Share with us, what are you looking for? What are opportunities you are seeking? What would you have liked to be brought to your table faster than what there is there today? Yeah, companies that do complementary, other startups or scale-ups that are building technology that are complementary to our work. We're looking to expand in either M&As or, or working together closer together with other companies as well that are maybe not exactly in our ring, but complementary in some ways. So. But maybe you can define what areas. Is it SEO, yeah, driven companies, uh, like physical analytics? Mm -hmm. What would those be? Yeah, SEO technology companies, other kind of marketing technology companies, especially they're focused on the local part, uh, which means technology for large companies with a lot of physical locations around the world, because that's our customer base. And we have a quite big customer base today. So other startups that can piggyback on us, that is pretty much where we are and what we're looking for. Do you have any affiliate program or like how much would you pay for a qualified lead or a co-selling model? We, we don't do that today. If someone is listening to this and they do that, they're happy to approach us and uh, we can discuss. We kept everything internally, product development, sales, CS, everything is 100% employed by Pinme2 at the moment. Funding, are you looking at raising maybe a bigger round at some point? Maybe. If we do a bigger round later on, it probably will be like a, a round where some buyouts of early investors and so on as well. So maybe to clean out the cap table a little bit and raise maybe some more money, but that will be the only reason we raise more money actually uh, to, to a little bit of a next step in the cap table kind of thing. Yeah. At it or that, that we might do in a year or two. So Daniel Mulgerson, founder and CEO of PinMe2, an amazingly capital efficient business and sales organization, adversity, buried with seven months of no salary when lead investor walked away now generating 6 million euro ARR, growing from 50 to 100 employees looking for complementary products for acquisitions or partnership opportunities. Daniel, thanks so much for sharing with us your product income making journey. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. For show notes and company KPIs, visit productincomemaker.com Search through dozens of inspiring product ideas and growth strategies. Visit ProductIncomeMaker.com.